Hey everybody, Eric here with a quick addendum to uh, something from Wednesday's episode that we should have mentioned then. If you're playing along with our bingo card game, you cannot score until we cover the episode in question. Otherwise, a bunch of people might turn in their cards today because you're going to binge the whole season because that's what most of us are going to do today. Um, so yeah, to give everybody a chance and, and because certain things require Lauren and I to weigh in on them, uh, please hold your completed cards until the episode in question that gives you the score. All right, cool. Also, uh, despite what you may have heard on our Facebook page, I am not sending our winners uh, $50. Sorry, Sean Rose. Enjoy. So one thing I didn't anticipate being able to say about the pandemic, which is really strange, is that I'm actually really loving recording podcasts at home. Isn't that weird, Lauren? It is. I remember the day you went to buy this equipment. And I was really excited because you hadn't super been on the podcast train for a few weeks. But then once you got that mic and you were asking me what other supplies you should get, and I was showing you pictures of like my pop screen, you seemed really excited. You were recording songs. So it, it turns out you love it. It's a new toy. I like it. Yeah, it sounds really good. I, I would say it's like 90% of the fidelity of the studio we go to with 100% less uh, other people and worrying about schedules and having to leave my couch, which are all huge positives. Yeah, I I do all of my recordings out of the exact same like pink office chair where I also do my schoolwork and I also do my work work. So I might move over to the couch next time. That sounds pretty nice. Yeah, it's fucking sweet. Podcasting from the couch is so 2020. It's probably the only good thing 2020 gave us, honestly. Yikes. I, hmm. As much as I agree with that, as much as my gut is like pulling towards that being true because the pandemic took like my trip to Ireland and it's probably going to take Dragon Con as well, I really want to fight it. Can we come up with like one good thing we've each gotten this year so far? Oh, yeah. I mean, mine's easy. Final Fantasy VII Remake. <laughs> Mine is probably my baby Yoda from Build-A-Bear. And if that's like the highlight of the year, I would actually not consider it that bad. It's a pretty pretty high high. <laughs> well, on the one hand, everyone's stuck inside and 100,000 Americans are going to die. But on the other hand, I have a cool baby Yoda toy. And I played so... a video game I already played before, but it's a little <laughs> bit better. <laughs> Well, I'm not the one who said that I would rack the year as a win. <laughs> I didn't say I got the a year. Cool video game. I just I didn't say the year would be a win. I meant that <laughs> Baby Yoda would be pretty near the top of the list, even in a good year. Okay, okay. Bottom of this year, no. Bottom of the year is still way down there. All right. Well, let's just see how the year shapes up. Maybe if you get another Baby Yoda, you'll you'll rank 2020 a little higher. Two Baby Yodas, then 2020 is a win. <laughs> And hello everybody, welcome back once again to She-Ra Progressive of Power. I'm Eric. And I'm Lauren. And this is the first episode of the final season of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. And it is the third episode of the probable final season of She-Ra Progressive of Power. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm kind of in a daze about it because I feel like A... We've been doing this show a really long time. It feels like a really like rudimentary part of me now. But also, we did say once before the show was ending. 
Yeah, but what could be what could be next? Like, okay, I know what it is. So that DreamWorks is going to announce that you and I are the new writers of Shira. That they're going to continue the show with us as the creative force. That's that's what's going to be. And then we can podcast about making the show. I don't know if I'm qualified for that job. I only had like one really good episode idea and I said it on this show like uh, two years ago. <laughs> Lauren, this is America. You don't have to be qualified. You just have to be white. Are you white? I am, but I'm also a woman. Oh, never mind. Eat my dust, Lauren. I'm off to Hollywood. Indeed. Where all good white males go. <laughs> I can only fail upward. <laughs> uh, so we are talking about the uh, season five premiere today, Horde Prime, which I imagine most of you have probably binged the whole season at this point, because what else are we doing? Lauren and I have only watched the premiere so as to not spoil anybody, but we are probably going to watch many more episodes before you hear from us again. So Horde Prime... Uh, the the titular character of the episode is also kind of the focus. So we're we're some amount of time after uh, Horde Prime brings his ship to Etheria, which is now out in the larger galaxy. Uh, the Horde is is kind of taking over uh, the planet, and when I say the Horde, I mean Horde Prime and his like super cool robot and bat forces. The Galactic not, Horde. Yes, the Galactic Horde, not robot, uh, not Hordax people. So they've got the rebels on the run. The rebels are at like this kind of ramshackle encampment, uh, like not really near Bright Moon. Adora's trying to lead things, but can't become She-Ra and hasn't really accepted her own limitations. Uh, Glimmer is, quote unquote, the guest of Horde Prime on his ship, but is locked up. Catra is trying to play Horde Prime as though he was Hordak and every other person in Catra's life. That's pretty much where everyone's at. Oh, and the Rebellion is kind of co-led by Micah and Shadow Weaver, it seems like. Yeah, definitely Shadow Weaver's affection for Micah seems to put her in a position that she perceives as quite high up there, but the princesses aren't so sure. At one point, um, Perfuma is the one asking, are you still our captive? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't cover a lot of plot, um, which maybe is doing a disservice to the episode because, like many season premieres, this episode does a lot of, like, kind of setting the table. But I, I think it does it in a really, like, organic way what, where story is progressing and we're kind of picking up what's been going on these, like, intervening months or whatever. Yeah, I actually I, really liked the time jump. We There were things that were clearly skipped over such as um, a clearly Micah got reintroduced like to the world, you know, he's alive. Right, right, right. And we didn't see that happen. And I actually was curious if he's the king now, because Adora has always addressed him as your majesty. And so that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but Glimmer's gone now. So is Micah the acting ruler? It's hard to say when they lost Bright Moon. Yeah, there's not really a kingdom, so it. Yeah, right. Also, Scorpia's with the rebels and getting along swimmingly with Swiftwind, which I found was absolutely adorable. Yes, that I think, if I'm not mistaken, is like the the biggest nod we saw to our bingo card because in that scene, Swiftwind says, "I have been known to sing." And then Scorpia gets very excited about it. Yep, I I concur. So if you're on Bingo Watch, uh. 
no no bingos no no fill-ins this episode that was close arguably i mean not close either way but there's fuel to both the catradora and glamatra ships in this episode as well yeah i think you could argue that either one of those is coming and i think epic space battle is also looking very possible given they're trying to get mara's ship up into the air yeah absolutely so definitely some seeds planted but no uh no bingo uh, hits yet. I would have thought the transformation could have slotted into this episode, but I guess th- they want to give us Adora like with her limitations a little longer, which is kind of a neat parallel to the premiere of season four, where we're like Glimmer is having to adjust to the new status quo. That's Adora now, like refusing to believe that she has limits. I actually think it might be a while before we see the transformation. I'd like to be proven wrong. But given the sort of nightmares, the visions Adora is having that include that like glorious golden vision of She-Ra, it seems like she might be haunted by that for a while. That character design looks awesome, by the way. If I don't know if that's supposed to be future Adora or if it's supposed to be more like the idea of She-Ra. Yeah. But it's got a very um, 80s look to it. The floor-length cape, the heeled boots, there are uh, the long hair. It really captures a lot of She-Ra's 80s design for me, even though it's just an outline right now. The staging of that scene kind of feels 80s too, just because like, so we have Adora sleeping restlessly with a broken sword of protection by her bed, and the sword is kind of feeding her these visions. That to me is like quite similar to um, in the classic show when Adora first becomes She-Ra, like she's sleeping and the sword calls out to her and it's the sorceress kind of telling her, you know, what uh, what's going on. I almost expected to see the sorceress in Adora's vision. The sorceress was one of the things I considered putting on my bingo card and I just wasn't, I wasn't sure because we already have the sort of mystical role of Madame Raz and there hasn't been any allusion to that character, I decided to pull back from it. And I, I'd i be surprised if we ended up going there. But I agree, there's a lot of classic She-Ra imagery in this episode, and that's what I really liked about it. Even the um, extra sort of civilians and magicians and people that are all sort of gathered in the woods, it really felt like the Great Rebellion from the classic cartoon, you know, hiding out and sort of doing guerrilla attacks down to like Bo's attitude at the beginning. I just found him shading closer to the original character. Yeah, I think this is a rich vein to mine because also, so at the end of the episode, the rebels, uh, like Adora's vision leads them to a new encampment, which is this place in the Whispering Woods where the trees literally like move aside to let them in, which is straight up the 80s She-Ra. Yeah, I remember asking that a season or two back about how much does the forest protect them like it does in the old show. And I think this is them really stepping into that environment. Right. Yeah. It wasn't clear before whether there was any protection. And I think that we only thought there might've been because we have the foreknowledge. Yeah. The kind of to that end. So not to, not to try to project too far, but it feels a little bit to me like parts of this story are trying to end 
where the classic cartoon begins, like a more powerful, more grown-up She-Ra in this specific section of the woods. Obviously, that's not entirely true. It can't be one for one, because Scorpia wouldn't be on the side of good. Like, just Entrapta wouldn't either. Hordak is the big bad in the original. It doesn't all line up that way. But I say it because... My my prediction of, like, Swiftwind having a baby, like, ending, like, the way the 80s cartoon ended, that one's feeling less likely to me because I don't think we're going to end where the 80s show ended. It's almost like we're beginning. We're ending where it began. I'm, I'm getting lost in my own words. No, I had a similar thought when they found that, like, the Whispering Woods Mach 2. Uh, it does feel like they're setting us up to grow into the, like, iconic... 80 Shira status quo, not like you said in every way, but in certain key ways. Whether it's really going there, we genuinely don't know, but that would be really interesting. Uh, also along those lines, so the Horde has the Horde troopers are are more in line with the classic troopers now. Like obviously they're robots, right? Like neither of the two Horde trooper designs have been the Masters of the Universe design, which might even be for legal reasons. But these have more of the feeling of those horde troopers i feel like they also have the robot bats which are like a a staple of 80s horde i wrote that down too and so you feel a little less bad at the escalation of the action like the robots literally get like chopped in half and their heads ripped off and stuff and it's fine because it's not a human like enlistee anymore exactly which is why lou scheimer favored the robots in she-ra too versus like in Masters of the Universe, pretty much all the bad guys were some kind of humanoid, so He-Man couldn't really go ham on them, but in She-Ra, it didn't matter. You forget He-Man. I have your power, too. Let's see how well you can use that power. How do you like that, hero? I don't like it, Faker, and I like you even less. Speaking of falling into kind of classic tropes, this episode made me sad because it's really starting to look like Catra maybe hasn't learned anything. Yeah, Catra immediately tried to take her place by the side of Horde Prime. The second she pledged her loyalty to Horde Prime. She started acting really snarky and sassy and superior to Glimmer. And Glimmer just calls her on it. Um, that's that's why I still appreciate Catra's like, lack of arc. It's because other characters aren't tolerating it anymore. Glimmer's like, you really think you're different? You really think you're going to come out ahead on this one? Have you seen this guy? Uh, and Catra says some very tough-to-hear stuff about how she worked her way up from the bottom before, and the Horde is the Horde, even if it's in space, and she's going to find her place in the world. I think, uh, thankfully for her plot development, that starts getting shaken out of her, like, literally in the same episode, though. I Yeah, I agree, and you're right. Having Glimmer call attention to it made me feel better. Um, but, yeah, certainly not for lack of Catra's trying. But also, Horde Prime does very similar things to Catra that, uh, that like, Shadow Weaver has done. He straight up tells her that uh, Hordak didn't like her at the end, which is only, like, a manipulative thing you would say to get someone to do what you want. And that made me really sad, too. Uh, and then later in their dinner scene, Horde Prime kind of tells on Catradora by, you know 
basically putting Catra in the spotlight and saying, I know you have feelings for her, which is fucking wild. Yeah, that dinner scene, so point the first, it showed Horde Prime as just a master manipulator, and he got Glimmer to sort of spill the beans, just sing like a bird, and didn't need Catra anymore. And I thought that was brilliant tactics on his part. Uh, I will say, very, like, sci-fi tropey, like the sort of white sanitary table and environment, but showing the group the devastation of their friends over like a banquet dinner. Very Empire Strikes Back. So my favorite part in the episode is that Horde Prime feeds Glimmer a delicacy from a world that he says uh, no longer exists because obviously they destroyed it. And that is just like the biggest fucking like peacock play in the whole goddamn world is like do you like this food cool the people who made it fell to my hand yeah it's and like good the, right the ingredients in it you can't get anymore <laughs> they're right. gone forever they're wiped from history that was fucking killer i i loved it i thought that whole dinner scene was great and you're right horde prime obviously like on a whole other level just calls out catra being like hey I know that you're trying to like parcel out information to be useful. I already know everything. So you're not going to get anywhere with that. But then he also has this line. He says, every part of the machine is of value. Even you little sister. I, that probably is just like how he addresses a, a little hoardling, but does it mean anything else? Do you think? I was wondering the same thing. Um, Right now, I'm going to interpret it as a a sort of greater fanatical following that he has and almost like religious status that he has. Like he sits in front of basically a stained glass peacock Mm. tail and when they catch, when the rebellion catches the clone in this episode, the clone just goes off on this like bringer of the day, master of the seven planets, life, death, everything, ruler of the known universe. It's very like a Khaleesi worship almost. Like this guy is a religion almost. And he even refers to himself as like bringing peace through purging. And it's it's another like tropey type of villain, but I can't be mad at it because he's doing it astonishingly well. Yeah, it's a little bit, like, Borg-like in as much as there's a collective, but I, yeah, it's super zealotry, because I get the impression that the Hordak clones are, they have some degree of autonomy, they just choose not to use it. Did you think that the captured clone was going to turn out to be, like, our Hordak, who had been, like, reprogrammed for a second? I thought so. I had wondered, so, backing up for a second, did you watch the credits, the opening credits, the, like, intro? I did, yeah. So there's some new new faces there. Yes, and one of the figures I th- at first thought was a neutered Hordak, and I still think it probably is. I think we're going to probably see him later. But not only did I think maybe this clone is Hordak, but I was also like, oh, maybe they get like a pet clone or something, and that's who that was in the beginning. Hmm. I have to watch it again. There was a lot of new stuff going on, so... Uh, I'll keep my eye open for next week. Yeah, there's also Catra sort of enveloped by 
clones. She looks very, um, almost like in a cocoon. She doesn't look powerful in it. And we get to see Micah and Seahawk in the final group shot, too. Yeah, pretty neat. Did you ever watch the 90s cartoon reboot? Yes, I did. So in, like, the last season, the big bad is this gorgeous uh, feminine virus named Damon. And this very much, Horde Prime very much feels like Damon to me. It's like this very prim and proper, like, you're my guests, I will treat you well, while just infecting everyone around and calling it peaceful and calling it the way. Um, Some of our main characters in Reboot end up infected, and they all just sit around this, like, palace, acting very peaceful and very civilized. But what's terrifying about it is, even though they're all being civilized and high intellectual, they're all... They're all brain wiped. They're all the same, infected by this one virus. And that's kind of what this is, too. Huge parallels. Although that might be dating me a little bit that I remember that show and grew up with it. I think a lot of Shira viewers now are probably young for that. Yeah, Reboot was like early 90s, like 93, 94-ish, but uh, re- really good. And yeah, you're right. That is a pretty striking parallel. I know Reboot most as the precursor to Beast Wars Transformers. It was like the first major CGI animated show. And then Beast Wars came and like was awesome. Yeah, I still have, um, I have, not still, it's not from my childhood. I acquired it here in my adulthood. But I have an action figure of Andrea from Reboot. She's one of my favorite characters of all time. And so if you, (laughs) I was going to recommend it, but I don't actually know if I can. Because what makes, what made Reboot so interesting was that it was the dawn of the internet like we were all just in real life learning what the internet was and so there was all this bogus jargon about bits and bytes and hacking and i bet actually it probably hasn't aged very well at all it's probably pathetic but i remember at the time thinking it was really cool Also, the animation looks really dated now, but it certainly is like a really interesting artifact of its time and not as dated as the Matthew Lawrence live action show Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, which is like a Tokatsu style show where he played um, a Power Ranger in the Internet and would kill viruses voiced by Tim Curry. That's true. Man, I remember I had a friend who watched a show called VR Troopers yeah. We just had a whole era of like, the internet's wild and you surf it, I guess. Let's make a yeah. show about it. Absolutely. And then uh, that was also the theme of Al Gore's presidential run. The internet's wild and you surf it, no, I guess. Al no, Gore, the, vote Al Gore. He, in, he invented it. Oh, that's fair. That Speaking of dating myself, that's an ancient fucking joke. What I remember the most about his presidency, well, run for president and and desire for the presidency was environmental conservation. And I think often about, like, what kind of nation would we be if we had had a four-year stint where that was someone's top priority? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he had that documentary in Inconvenient Truth, you know, uh, which seems more present now than 20 years ago. Again, like, I don't know if that would have aged well. I bet I would watch that now and be like, oh, it's so much worse than this. Absolutely. Which, But doesn't that make you frustrated that you're like, 
man, fucking 20 years ago, this writing was on the wall and no one did shit. And now look where we're at. And no one is still doing shit. Right. What are we going to say in 2040? Trick question. We'll all be dead. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most bright, shiny podcast of all. Yeah. We just like Uh, dove off a 90s cartoon cliff into like, anyway, climate change will kill us all. Okay, but socioculturally, don't you think that's what happened is like the 90s was this like period of like, at least for our generation, like just kind of not caring about shit. And then the 2000s hit with like President Bush and 9-11 and we're like, oh, fuck, we like everything's terrible. So legitimately, I agree with that. But how much do you think was the actual like culture of the time and how much of it was our actual age because in the 90s i was a child so of course i didn't care about anything but like what kid vid the burger king mascot was doing and how many teeny beanie babies i collected from mcdonald's i guess i'm in a fast food place right now that's kind of what the 90s were about for me oh you're supposed to be at home not a fast food place (laughs) shoot Uh, no i i mean totally i think it's both like i would imagine that the Clinton presidency for like slightly more aware liberals was similar to the Obama presidency. And as much as like, because quote, our guy was in there, like people just kind of looked the other way and assumed that things were fine. When like something you said last week, so many people are telling us it's not fine, but you just don't listen because it's inconvenient. And then when their guy gets back in and you're like, Oh fuck, not only is he making things bad, but also everything from before is now exacerbated so I, I think it's both that we were dumb kids and that probably people were feeling good about a president that could play the saxophone and smoke weed and didn't pay attention to bad things that were happening i also say this from a place of love but like my parents have never been super politically engaged um the first time my dad voted in his entire life was to vote for donald trump which is pretty wild Jesus Christ. but that also means like as a kid whatever was going on politically we probably weren't talking about over the dinner table at all like it wasn't a concern or on the map and i don't know how prevalent that was in america at large but i know i'm i'm a big outlier in my family for really being tuned into this stuff and podcasting about it so not only was i a kid but like my family was just watching whatever was on like must see tv and then we'd go to bed so what do you remember? I This is interesting, but we've, we've been very quick with the episode, so I think we have the time. What do you remember as the first like overtly political thing you can recall in your memory? Because obviously, looking back, so many things take on this like political uh, meaning because politics is in everything. But like overtly, obviously political, I would say it for me, it's a toss up between um, Bill Clinton's impeachment or uh, the stuff with Ilian Gonzalez and, uh, and like, Cuba and, and, like, immigration in the late 90s? So, literally, I mean, if, if we're going literally political, I think it would be Bill, uh, Bill Clinton. But if, like, the O.J. Simpson trial counts... See, that's why I mean, like, things be, you realize they are political. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think the first thing I knew was political was Bill Clinton and the, like, Monica Lewinsky scandal. But looking back, I can remember, like, the dancing Judge Itos on the Jay Leno show. And, like, that was, in its time, political humor. 
and that was several years before. Yeah, it's true. Um, I I don't know if there's any import to that question. I just think it's interesting. And now, like, I, I don't know about you, but I imagine everything you see, you like, are immediately you assess the sociopolitical standing of of what you're watching. And you figure out, like, what it means about the power dynamics baked into society that, like, this thing is happening right now and whatever. Um, oh, yeah. Like, every all... everything I witness and hear here in my 30s is, like, either about income inequality or sexism or homophobia. <laughs> Just, like, yeah. e- literally everything. Yeah. I'd say we're all ruined, but I think that probably things were always like this and just, like, there are more quote unquote woke people now. And also we're just more cognizant of it. And it's easier to have opinions about this stuff because the internet for all its flaws, you know, makes, makes learning about this stuff easier and more present. And thus we're back at reboot. I come from the net through systems, peoples and cities to this place. Mainframe. My format guardian to mend and defend to defend my newfound friends, their hopes and dreams, to defend them from their enemies. They say the user lives outside the net and inputs games for pleasure. No one knows for sure, but I intend to find out. Reboot! Um, I don't feel like I have much else to say about Horde Prime. I thought that was a lovely diversion. What do you think? I would like to point out just a couple little, like, cutesy things I spotted in this episode. Admittedly, I was really paying attention to the background of some of the parts of this episode. Because I just, if they put Lookie in somewhere, I want to be the one who sees him. (laughs) I didn't find any Lookie, but when Adora wakes up from her nightmare, on the shelf across the room from her are little figurines of like glimmer and bow and adora two of the two of the three i think but it's like the the figurines that we know bow makes and they were just there like set dressing and i thought that was really cute there was also entrapped it was in this episode we haven't really talked about her i was surprised to see her so unconflicted being with the rebels that's just who she's working with now and it's fine and she doesn't she didn't mention hordak at all yes agree it, it was a little bracing to see her just like side by side with Bo, like nothing had changed and i think my my favorite line in this episode was delivered by micah of all people who um really puts Shadow Weaver in her place when you said that they were leading the rebellion together i had a hard time Taking that entirely at face value because she pulls that manipulation line like, your daughter knew when to act, trying to convince them to use the heart of Etheria. And he just goes, don't talk to me about my daughter. And it's such a great smackdown. Yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting relationship to watch, especially because there's a point in the kind of siege on their temporary camp where Shadow Weaver saves Micah. And she seems, like, genuine in her desire that he not be hurt. So, whatever else is going on, and we know that she's a master manipulator, it seems like she does, like, care about him. Well, yeah, we've talked on this show before about how, like, in the same way that Thanos loves Gamora, and it's shown by the natural (laughs) mysticism of the movie that he must somewhere inside, abusers can have genuine affection for the lives that they've ruined it doesn't make it okay 
But that does make Shadow Weaver just the most interesting character to me still. Agree. Come on, Thanos is way worse than Shadow Weaver. Shadow Weaver's sympathetic. Yeah, oh yeah. Thanos way worse. I definitely yeah. um, also really loved Scorpia after she stings Adora. Saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't regret it, I would do it again, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, that's my second favorite line of the episode, absolutely. If I could get, like, just the entirety of that tattooed in several loops around my arm or something, I feel like, I'm sorry, I don't regret it, I'd do it again, I'm sorry, is how I live most of my life, for better or for worse. <laughs> God, Scorpia is so dang relatable, I'm so happy that she is in with the Rebels. You're awake! Oh, hello, Adora! Uh, what happened? Where are those clones? Did we get them? Okay, um, don't get mad, but I may have had to sting you just a little. What? Well, you were refusing to retreat, and we, we really, really needed to run away. Space clones! You stung me? I'm sorry, so sorry, but I don't regret it, and we'll do it again if needed. I'm sorry, again. So, yeah, this episode at the end sets us up with a situation where, as you said earlier, the Rebels are kind of in almost a classic She-Ra base with the Whispering Woods protecting them. The Galactic Horde is gathering information on Adora with an intent to wipe out the Rebellion by taking out its figurehead. Catra seems not sure of her place in the world. Glimmer is a prisoner. There's... The the stage is set for a really explosive season, and it is interesting to me that so far nothing that we predicted has happened. I don't think much is ruled out, but like, I'm, I don't know. I wouldn't say this episode surprised me, but it, it also, I think, had more of like a widescreen panoramic feel than I thought it might, and it makes me really excited for the rest of the season. Yeah, this episode didn't really hold much surprise for me either, but. That is partially because so much footage was released from it before it came out. By the time I watched it, I had already seen the opening scene and parts of the banquet scene. And the banquet especially is like kind of the backbone of this episode. It really... I think the point of this episode is to say Horde Prime isn't anything like we've encountered before. And that's the point of the episode that proves the point. It doesn't get much um, more intense than that. Agree. Okay, so to take us out, you mentioned how that scene feels very similar to Empire Strikes Back. I agree. My question to you, would you rather have a banquet with Darth Vader or Horde Prime? Oh, I think Horde Prime. And Same. like this is a bad bad rationale, but like I'm not here to get force choked. <laughs> and well, thus far, even though my bingo card says I think Horde Prime can, like, murder people with hair tentacles, he hasn't done anything like that so far, and I think he cares a little bit more about putting on airs that he's civilized. And here's the other thing, though. Darth Vader doesn't feed the Rebels anything that we see. (laughs) He just takes Han right to the freezing chamber. At least Glimmer gets to eat some, like, conquered people's best dish. Like... It sucks that they're dead, but at least you get some tasty ass food. I, like I definitely that's pick where you're coming prime. from. I mean, it's not the only reason, but in addition to other compelling reasons, at least you're still eating with Horde Prime. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs>
I think that's it. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.